it's almost like we're exposed to a lot of electromagnetic fields and we almost like accumulate static charge in our body. And there's only so many ways we can discharge that. You know, we can take up salt soda bath, for instance, or we could walk barefoot on the ground. But acupuncture is another way where we can almost like discharge that static energy. And that's been my observation is that acupuncture very specifically along certain points can kind of bleed out some of this excess static energy. Welcome to the North Star Unplugged podcast brought to you from Bozeman, Montana. Your host is Kristen Rainey, the founder and CEO of North Star Sleep School, providing online and in-person sleep courses to help you get better rest. The North Star Unplugged podcast is about rest and rejuvenation, and it's also about unplugging from technology, transitions and transformations, and spending time and energy on the things that really matter, which are different for all of us. You can find the audio version of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Finally, you can also see all prior episodes on the North Star Sleep School website at www.northstarsleepschool.com. Hello, and welcome back to North Star Unplugged. This is Kristen Rainey, and today I'm here with Brandon LaGreca, who is a licensed acupuncturist, a thought leader in the synthesis of traditional and functional medicine, and the author of Cancer and EMF Radiation, How to Protect Yourself from the Silent Carcinogen of Electropollution. Brandon, thank you so much for being here today. Welcome to the show. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, Kristen. And it's an honor to be on with you. So first things first, it would be great to define what EMF stands for. Electromagnetic fields. And it basically is, if you look at old school, high school physics, when we think about the electromagnetic spectrum, it's everything that's on that spectrum, just going from x-rays to visible light to microwave radiation, which is what we're going to talk a lot about. Great. And so when we think about our day-to-day lives and our interactions with various gadgets and devices in our homes, how are we exposed to EMF radiation in our homes? Let's split hairs here because uh, initially we have to talk about the fact that we are exposed to natural forms of electromagnetic fields that we've evolved with for millennia, such as just plain sunlight, for instance. But what we're going to focus on is the non-native or or I should say artificial or human-made sources of electromagnetic fields. And uh, I'll give you examples of how we're exposed to them increasingly over the years. I mean, it just started with plain old radar and radio waves that have been in use for well over 100 years to modern electrification for all the wiring going into all the buildings that we live in. And then those frequencies have gotten higher as we've been experimenting with technologies in the microwave radiation field. And those are things like cell phones and cell phone towers, Wi-Fi routers, And it also includes basically all the computers and all the different signals that they're admitting all the time. So I think for some people, the idea of microwave radiation, they immediately think literally of their microwave. But clearly, there's actually a lot of other ways that we can get exposure to microwave radiation. Absolutely. And so the frequency band is actually the same. The difference between a microwave oven and your cell phone is just actually power. So we think of the the actual wavelength itself. That's the frequency, right? And so when it falls at a certain, in this case, anywhere from 300 megahertz to 300 gigahertz, we consider that the microwave band. Now, 
both a cell phone and a microwave are going to operate with that frequency. The difference is the power in which it's emitted, and that's measured in wattage. And so in the case of a microwave oven, you put something in there, the wattage is extremely high. It's causing this thermal effect where it's heating up the food that you put in. Now, a cell phone has a much lower wattage, but that doesn't mean that it's not causing effect just because it's not necessarily heating up the tissue behind your ear. So then we can talk about more of the nuance between the thermal and non-thermal effects when exposed to microwave radiation, but essentially they are the same. And so will you walk us through what exposure to EMFs does to our bodies? So just as a hypothetical example, talking on our cell phone for an hour with our phone next to our head, what's actually happening? Let's break it down exactly like I just mentioned to thermal and non-thermal effects. And some people will actually notice that if they do hold their cell phone pressed up pretty close to their head and they're talking for extended length of time, that they actually do have a thermal effect, which means they'll feel their ear warm up. They'll feel the side of their head warm up. And from the very beginning, when there were safety studies looking at things like cell phones, that was the main metric that we used to to quantify whether or not there was going to be an issue. We thought, okay, is the wattage sufficient that we are going to heat up the tissue that's being exposed from the cell phone? And so that is, in essence, what a SAR rating is. If you've seen you know, a cell phone and it has a SAR rating, that's called specific absorption rate. And that's basically a measurement of how that cell phone is conducting that heat into the body. So even though cell phones are operating at a low wattage, doesn't mean there's still a little bit of this thermal effect going on. Well, there's a couple problems associated with these, you know, the SAR ratings that have been given to phones for the last couple of decades. You know, the modeling that's done with them is basically on a human male adult skull. And the obvious question right there is, well, there's a certain density to the skull of, you know, an 18-year-old male, but that's very different than, say, children who are using cell phones in increasing ways, and they've got less bone density in their skull. And so are they exposed to more of the thermal effects, you know, coming from them? But beyond that, it does not tell us if there's any non-thermal effects that could be accruing from the use of cell phone. And that's something that's been now studied a little bit more over the last decade. You know, could there be non-thermal effects from microwave radiation? And the answer to that is assuredly yes. I mean, we know from test tube studies, for instance, where heat is not factored in just by exposing that frequency, okay, to cells in our test tube that we can start seeing damage to those cells. And so now there's this newer line of research saying, okay, what are the non-thermal effects? And is that something we should be worried about? So it's interesting that, you know, we've now had cell phones for now, what, 25 years? I can't even, I'm not even doing the math properly, but, you know, it's been a long time. And so it's interesting. Do you find it surprising that cell phones are still relying on just looking at the thermal rating and not looking at these non-thermal effects, which, as you point out, are quite damaging for our cells. You know, I, the analogy that I draw in my book, which I think is really pertinent here, I'll share with your audience, it really feels to me like this kind of is going down the same path as cigarette smoking, where it was totally common for cigarettes to be considered basically safe and that people were just smoking them. And there were there were advertisements for this brand of cigarettes was the one preferred by doctors. You know, I'll tell you a story. Even when I was in China about 16, 17 years ago now, 
I still saw people smoking in hospital buildings there. And that just shows you that they're a little bit kind of behind us in terms of where we are in our acknowledgement. And now, of course, it's completely self-evident, right? You know, no one would argue the point that cigarettes smoke is a potent carcinogen, and then hence we don't want to be exposed to even secondhand smoke and so on and so forth. And the reason why we can do that in hindsight is because we're on the other side of that research curve. We have kind of compiled enough epidemiological evidence that we have this mature consensus about what cigarettes do to us. Well, I feel like we're on the front side of that when it comes to cell phones. Yes, the evidence is kind of piling up now, but we're still on the front end of the curve. We don't really know where this is going. I mean, we're all pretty much lab rats in terms of what we were being exposed to with uh, microwave radiation day in and day out. And so, you know, I think it's it's kind of in a, a similar story that way that we'll probably know more over time, but we're already seeing the inklings in the research literature about what it's doing to us. And your book outlines evidence of increased cancer growth in animals from exposure to this radiation, correct? Yeah, and that's one of what I've documented is four corroborating lines of evidence that all seem to dovetail and suggest that there is certainly their harm from cell phone radiation. And I just focused on the carcinogenic aspect. I mean, there's other authors and other researchers out there who are looking more broadly, for instance, which is, would be germane to your audience, is the effects on sleep, the, the effects on cognition, the effects on mood and behavior. I mean, all these things are seem to be other aspects to this big problem, and which is no different than, say, you know, cigarette smoking and some people can cause lung issues, but someone can also be exposed secondhand and be getting headaches from it. So people are going to respond to it in different ways. And so it's going to take this kind of collective research effort to really flesh all this out. In 2011, the World Health Organization labeled EMFs a possible carcinogen like lead. How significant was that? I mean, of course, it's this, the word possible is in there. How significant was that announcement? And do you think anything changed since then? Doesn't seem like it. Yeah. You know, it, it should have been taken a little bit more seriously. I mean, group 2B, which is the category that it was placed in, is the same as lead and DDT. Now, I don't know anyone going around willingly exposing themselves to lead and DDT, yet, you know, our fascination and our addiction to devices is, does seem to put blinders on when it comes to our personal use of these devices. And you've noted in your book that some people are much more sensitive to this exposure or hypersensitive to EMFs. What would give someone the idea or the notion that that is the case for them? What kind of symptoms would they experience? Yeah, so we call it EHS or electrohypersensitivity syndrome. And I've seen several patients over the years and actually maybe a few more increasingly since my book has come out, have come to my clinic, even though I'm out here in rural Wisconsin. But there seems to be a constellation of symptoms and Unfortunately, within the conventional model, there's no doctors that are really looking for this per se. I mean, unless you're kind of more in the integrative space like I am. But generally, there's a few things that come up. One of them is, you know, headaches and migraines, obviously, especially when you're surrounded by maybe you're driving into an, an urban area and there's a bunch more cell phone towers and bam, all of a sudden the headache just kind of comes out of nowhere. Another one, which is really common is heart palpitations very common in this in this uh, population. And restlessness, kind of sleep issues is a third one that comes up. Those are like probably the big three that come up. And, and it usually happens in these people who basically just do it by discovery, where they just kind of figure out that, you know, if they shut off their, their wireless router and they stop using their cell phone, those symptoms disappear. And so by process of trial and error, they kind of realize that they're one of these people that are more sensitive than the rest of us. And there are canaries in the coal mine, so to speak, right? There are early warning systems that there might be more issues than what meets the eye. And what I say, too, specifically to this point, is just because they're having more symptoms doesn't mean the rest of us who may not be sensitive are not. We're just maybe not noticing it 
or we're not making the association because it's not acute enough for us. But what I would say is we're also probably accruing damage to our bodies over time, even though we're not maybe making that association. Is there any difference in how our bodies are experiencing the radiation from a cell phone that we're talking on versus a cell phone tower in our region? Is it similar in terms of the impacts or are our bodies reacting differently to those? That's a good question. And I don't know if I have a great answer for you. What I will tell you, though, is how at least cell phone towers and cell phones interact is if you are closer to a cell phone tower, your cell phone itself doesn't need as much signal strength. So your cell phone itself will operate more weakly. If you are further away, your cell phone tower has to work harder. And then by extension, there's going to be a stronger signal being emitted by your cell phone. And so they're basically proportional to each other. So yes, you can say that I live far away from cell phone tower. And our recommendation is just to be at least a mile away. You know, you want to, especially when it comes to line of sight, you know, you don't want to be within at least half a mile to a mile of a cell phone tower. But just because you're far away, if you're using your device and it has to kind of raise the bars in order to get a signal, then the device that's in your hand is really the problem. That's the one that's emitting the most strongest signal in your house at that moment, even if you're not close to a cell phone tower. You mentioned earlier that kids using a cell phone are experiencing the EMF radiation differently from adults, in part because their skulls are more thin. Are there other ways in which kids' bodies experience EMF differently from adults? I think so. And I think that's largely in part because of their, the rapid growth and development for children. And so I think they're probably more vulnerable. This is something that was at least implicated when it came to electrification and high-tension power wires, that we saw increases of leukemia in children that were living closer to those outposts. That notion has been in the research literature for the last couple decades, and we know children are more susceptible. I don't think we've seen it necessarily yet when it comes to things like cell phones, but it's probably coming soon in terms of what we'll see in the research. So with so many years now, over 20 years of cell phone use data, are there any organizations that you feel are doing neutral third-party research studies on this? You know, organizations that are not, for example, affiliated with the cell phone world or anything else? Well, the big one that I point to in my book is the National Toxicology Program. They're the ones who did the animal studies, looking at mice and rats and exposing them for a couple of years in some cases. And so from a governmental standpoint, yeah, that got some really good data. And that's largely because they weren't funded by any one industry. Uh, One of the other researchers that came up uh, was Dr. Henry Lai. He's the one who seems to, working within the academic space, really kind of cut through the industry stuff and kind of look at the research and get to the bottom of it of what was actually true, genuine research as opposed to maybe industry biased. So I look for his name uh, when it comes to a lot of these different studies as well. I'd love to turn to melatonin, which many listeners might be familiar with that we naturally produce in our bodies and which signals to us it's time for sleep. And it was very interesting to read in your book about this sort of circular relationship, the fact that our bodies are using melatonin as an antioxidant, clearing those free radicals. So, you know, helping mitigate the experience of this EMF radiation. And yet at the same time, it also seems like EMF, you said, suppresses melatonin. So can you tell a little a little bit more? Because I think this is a really interesting link of, in true terms, of how having your cell phone next to your bed at night is bad in many, many, many ways, more so than we might have realized. Yeah. So when I started looking at, okay, maybe we have evidence epidemiological that cell phones and microwave radiation and so on and so forth 
could be causing damage to it. It's potentially carcinogenic. And then that we maybe have the experimental studies that show that, you know, direct DNA damage in, in test tubes, for instance. Okay, then the next question is, okay, what are the likely mechanisms behind that happening? And there are several. And looking at it, my thought is that it's probably all of them to some extent, all these mechanisms involved. But the one that was really clear, we could document it as much from basic 60 hertz AC current going to the bedside lamp and, and alarm clock next to your bed, just as much as the microwave radiation being emitted from your cell phone is all of those forms of EMF do tend to suppress melatonin in the body. I mean, that's very clear that that pattern comes up in the research literature. And so what I would say to you is if we already know that that effect exists, I explored the cancer link to that, which is exactly what you said, that melatonin acts as a potent free radical scavenger. And so in the absence of that, that's making our body more prone for precancerous cells to develop into cancerous cells. But even that aside, if no one's even worried about developing cancer, there is this direct correlative the lowering of melatonin, and that's going to obviously affect our sleep quality. And so, I mean, that then leads to many recommendations of how we have to have a good relationship with these devices, particularly around the hours winding down into sleep and then in our bedroom and having a good etiquette about that. I'm going to ask you in just a second about what is the ideal bedroom for sleeping in terms of which devices to have or not have and what you do and what you recommend for patients. But before that, I also just wanted to hear about your take of the relationship of EMF and calcium. Yeah. So this is the work of Dr. Martin Paul, who brought this to our attention, that uh, we have what are called voltage-gated calcium channels on our cells. And basically, they are, what we've discovered and what he's discovered is they're being influenced by exposure to these electromagnetic fields that we're all being exposed to. And what that does is it kind of shuttles calcium into the cells. And so that seems to be a problem from a number of different avenues. And one of them, of course, is it does lead to the excess calcium can lead to more free radical damage. So there, that represents yet another potential mechanism that could be driving kind of the cancer train, so to speak. So one of the things I, I discuss in my book is we want to kind of do the reverse of that, which means we want to counterbalance calcium, which in the mineral that does that, of course, is magnesium. Magnesium, I'm sure what you're well aware of, is a nice relaxing nutrient. I mean, it's one that can help people to sleep, for instance. And so what we're seeing is an excess flood of calcium into the cells and then not the counterbalancing of magnesium, which, by the way, I can say this clinically as a, as a practitioner, I mean, magnesium deficiency is pretty rampant within the Western world. So we're going to compound now this deficiency of magnesium plus this external environmental influences, which is driving calcium into the cells excessively. And that's creating this little perfect storm of another source of oxidative damage. And you also mentioned the risks of having silver fillings in your mouth when you're exposed to Wi-Fi signals. Can you share a little more about what's happening there? Yeah, that was really bizarre. I found a couple studies that very specifically looked at the application of, you know, different non-native electromagnetic fields around the mouth and how they might actually cause an increase of off-gassing mercury from amalgam fillings. You know, amalgam fillings are predominantly mercury, even though they're called silver. It's They're well over 50% mercury. And it, it is pretty apparent, and there's some good evidence showing this, that they do tend to off gas over time as we chew, you know, just from abrasion itself, minute amounts of mercury vapor. And um, it seems that, uh, you know, cell phones and such that will be increasing the electromagnetic field exposure can, um, can augment that effect. 
I know people who have made the deliberate and expensive painful decision to replace all their fillings as adults with ceramic. Is that something that you recommend for those who have that situation? I think it's a really good idea. I know in our family, my wife had, um, she had a few dental mercury amalgam fillings removed before we decided to start a family. Um, So that was pretty important for us to go through the process of removing those, going through a, a really comprehensive mercury detoxification protocol, um, and our health has benefited since then. And what I would say is anyone who is looking at doing so to first connect with a you know a bi- good biological dentist who is very holistic minded and to take your time. This is not something you take them all out at once. You know, this is a slow and steady wins the race kind of guy. You want to have all your ducks uh, in a row. You want to be able to move them slowly um, and then really kind of see how you're feeling, check your mercury levels, which is another possibility. And then one step at a time. So now that listeners are hearing about this link between EMF radiation and cancer, and we're hearing also just about all these other other things that are happening, like suppressing melatonin, which might lead to sleep disruption, I'm sure the question on a lot of listeners' mind is, okay, what can we do about this? Because we're not about to go throw our cell phones in the garbage. So how can we actually live with these devices and make some small and some large changes so that we can minimize our exposure to EMF radiation? Yeah, that's the million dollar question. And everyone's going to have to answer this for themselves in terms of what's right for them. And obviously, I mean, obviously, I'm not a Luddite. I'm here talking with you on a laptop on Zoom, right? Now, I happen to be doing that on a laptop that's plugged in with Ethernet cable as opposed to in a wireless you know, setup. But everyone's going to have to decide kind of what's best for them. So I'll give you some very general recommendations, um, and then we'll kind of proceed from there if you have more questions. So first of all, yes, I do have a cell phone. My cell phone, I would say over 90% of the time, though, is in airplane mode. And all I'm really using it for is, you know, I do like, for instance, messaging just on my desktop or my laptop. Uh, I might turn it on briefly just to check messages if I'm out, but then I put it right back in the airplane mode when I'm not using it and then back in my pocket. Furthermore, I have invested in what's called, a, there's, there's various different companies that do this, but you can buy basically a case for your cell phone where one side of it is shielded. And that way, if you do carry it on your person, you know, you can have the side that's shielded basically is the side that goes against your body. So that's kind of an extra layer of protection. But even with that, I never hold my cell phone to my head. I just don't do that. I actually just have earbuds wired and I plug it in. If I have to make a call, if I'm out and about, I'll use that put the phone kind of off, maybe on a table somewhere, and I'm just talking through the wired headset. Um, So that is far safer in the sense I'm transmitting the sound into the cell phone, but the cell phone, I'm not in direct personal contact with it. So that's kind of like an etiquette you can use when it comes to cell phones. Uh, When it comes to computers, laptops, all the other various devices that we may have in our home and office, I mean, my recommendation is to really just invest in, in, in an Ethernet network. It's not that hard to do. Um, You may have to drill some holes in your wall, but by and large, you can run Ethernet cable to practically anywhere that you need connectivity. You can get, you know, switches and different ways where you can split that into, again, as many places as you possibly need. And even when it comes to things like uh, cell phones and tablets, um, there is a way, and I describe this in my book, that you can have, and this is how I use my tablet, my in this case, my iPhone and my iPad at home, is you can actually plug them in 
through the lightning cable on the bottom to an ethernet cable that you can operate it completely with an airplane mode. And so it's absolutely possible to do that. A lot of people don't realize that, that you know, obviously they're wireless devices, but you can use them wired. That's absolutely possible. So you do have that option. If you are not sold on this notion and you still choose to use wireless in your house, well, then what I would say to you is in the very least, just shut it off at night because one, you're not using it at night. And two, we because we know of this effect in terms of suppressing melatonin, why even take that chance? It could be as simple as going to your hardware store and spending $3 on just a mechanical timer, You know, plug that into the outlet, plug your wireless router into the timer and just have it go off around the time that you normally go to sleep and then turn back on again when you wake up in the morning. Some people just choose to unplug their wireless router during the day and plug it in whenever they need it. That works too. So again, different kind of layers to how you would think about um, using these devices, but you know, figure out what works best for you. Now, I will say this just as a personal bias. I have a cancer history. That's that's my interest in writing this, was writing this book. For instance, I wanted to really explore the elephant in the room when it comes to EMF as a carcinogen. So I had a 2015 diagnosis, which was pretty major. And even though I've been in remission for the last six years, gratefully, this is something that I take very seriously. So for me, I don't want to add any more exposure to carcinogens than I have to. So you have to realize I'm coming at this from a place where I'm being just more cautious than the average person. Now, does that beg the notion that everyone else should be? Well, that's going to be up to them in determining their risk factors. So it sounds like lots of things we could literally start doing today. You've talked about, you know, putting our phones in airplane, our cell phones in airplane mode as much as possible. You've talked about instead of holding the cell phone to your ear or using wireless earbuds, instead using a wired headset that plugs in. And you've talked about, you know, instead of having wireless in in your house for your computer, using an Ethernet cable and being literally plugged in. Is the speed different at all? Because I imagine that might come up as a question. Is the speed different at all, whether you're wireless versus plugged in with an Ethernet cable, or is it exactly the same? It's better wired. Better wired. Awesome. Yeah, more consistent for sure. I imagine since you're so understandably cautious about all these issues, what does your bedroom situation look like in terms of phones, alarm clocks, lamps, other gadgets? Do you have anything in your bedroom? Yeah. So basically, I do have some devices in our bedroom, but I also have them going to the outlet and then I have a switch there. So at the end of the evening, I just basically flip that switch. So all the current that would be going to those devices are completely gone. This was actually really interesting to me because kind of on one end of our bedroom, I do have a computer set up, a desktop. And with the computer completely shut off, you can still measure a signal. It's still pulling current. And so that's why I turn it off completely, basically at the source, at the outlet itself, and then it doesn't do that. Now, alarm clocks, you have a couple options there. One is just to have something that's battery operated, and then you're not worried about it being plugged in at all. But even if you do have an alarm clock that's plugged in, now, for instance, I have a sunrise alarm clock. And the reason, and this saved our marriage because my wife is a little bit more sensitive to sound. So I just have an alarm clock where it starts to glow you know, as mimicking the sunrise. So it really works for our family. Now, unfortunately, it's plugged in. So the the, um, the caveat to that is I just have it far enough away that, and I can measure this, of course, because I have all these EMF meters. Um, I can measure that the the current coming off of that is not bleeding over into kind of where my sleeping space is. But as a rule of thumb, if someone didn't want to invest in getting an EMF meter, if you can extend your hand and reach your alarm clock, chances are it's probably too close in terms of the electromagnetic field that's being emitted from it. And again, this is these are things you can measure. This is not guesswork. But 
it's generally about for most alarm clocks, maybe four feet or so. So you want them, in this case, I have it on a bedside stand significantly far away from where my bed is. Beyond that, you know, kind of do all the, the typical things that you probably know and love, such as block out curtains. And, um, you know, we do could, you could have a white noise machine, for instance, there again, too. You don't want something very close to your bed. You can have that kind of tucked away off in a corner and so on and so forth. And what do you do with your cell phone at night? Completely off. Yep. Turned off. Not even in, in airplane mode, but com- all those other devices are completely turned off. Now I realize I say that and some people actually use their cell phone as an alarm to get up in the morning. So in that case, the best you can do is have it in airplane mode, set the timer for your, your wake up and then have the phone as far away as you can make it where you could still hear it and get up in the morning. You talked earlier about various cases you can get for your cell phone that shield your body from that EMF radiation. Are there any particular companies that you think are doing a, you know, a, an especially good job with this? Yeah. So I, I bought a few of them and I measured them on my cell phone to see. They all kind of work about the same. I mean, they're not uh, foolproof. And, and by, what I mean by that is I don't want to lull people into a, a sense of security that as long as they have this shield where they cover their phone, they can hold it to their head and there's, there is zero exposure. I mean, there, there still is some exposure. All it really does is it blunts it. Now, these companies in their marketing will tell you differently. They'll tell you that they, they, you know, whatever, eliminate 99% of the exposure to microwave radiation. But when I measure with my meters, I don't get that at all. And in one instance, I actually wrote one of the companies and said, hey, this isn't exactly what you claim. And their response to me was, well, yes, but you're not measuring it in a laboratory condition where you know everything is controlled for, which my response to, of course, was, well, who uses their cell phone in a laboratory condition, right? So I want the real deal, what we're going to be exposed to day in and day out. So I, I did that with my own meters. And I could, I could tell you that they blunt the effect in terms of the exposure to EMF, but they don't totally eliminate it. So it's better than nothing. But even with having one of those, like I say, I still use a wired headset whenever I need to use my phone. I know that in addition to shielding cases for your cell phone, they also have shielding clothing. What's your take on shielding clothing? Yeah, I mean, I think for someone who's really super sensitive, you know, someone that has EHS, uh, maybe that would be a benefit for them. It's not something I personally invested in using. I think, and this is a theme that comes up in my writing and, of course, in my clinical life is uh, I put a lot more emphasis on building people up, you know, building their own resilience. You know, I have a whole chapter on resilience in my book, just because I feel like, you know, we're going to be exposed to these things in increasing ways. And there's definitely the real possibility that someone can get so afraid of all the things we can possibly expose to that they're going to try to live into a bubble, so to speak. Um, and that's not what I want at all, too. I want people to be empowered to to try some of these strategies, but at the same time, not to be living in fear of all the things that we're being exposed to. And so that comes down to building resilience within yourself. How do you become stronger in the face of these environmental exposures that you feel like you can go on your life living, you know, absolutely normally for the most part? So I know that your book, you know, delves extensively into this topic, but I also know that for the rest of the week, when you're not writing books, that you have an acupuncture practice. So can you share a little bit more about the link between the two? Do you have clients who are coming in with some symptoms of some of these challenges of EMF radiation? What's the connection there? And can you share a little bit more about some of the common issues that you're treating? Yeah, I don't know if everyone is obviously as tapped in as someone who might have EHS and they're making those recognitions. But what I'm looking for, this will be interesting to you, is I'm definitely looking for people who have sleep challenges that are just really stubborn and really getting them to change the, the EMF environment in their bedroom and their house and seeing if that makes a difference. I'll tell you a fun story about that. 
we have friends in the area here that moved into a small apartment and their wireless router was in their bedroom and they moved with their cat and their cat historically would always come into their bed and sleep at the foot of their bed at night. When they moved to this apartment, that cat did not sleep in that bedroom until they read my book and they unplugged their wireless router at night. And from that day forward, the cat came in and slept in their bedroom. And so, you know, animals in some ways are smarter than we are in terms of being <laughs> very observant of their environment. And so that's a great example of kind of how this all plays out. And so I'm looking for people who have, you know, anxiety that comes out of nowhere. Just, you know, they're not stressed about anything, but man, they just have a little spike of anxiety. Or they do have palpitations that just seems to be really random. Or they are having headaches and migraines that don't seem to be linked to anything else that we can figure out or like a food sensitivity or um, any other postural stress-related stuff. I'm looking for these kind of weird niche little areas that I feel like, okay, what can this possibly be? And I'm always thinking environmental medicine. And it doesn't have to be EMF. I mean, it could be mold exposure, radon, what have you. But EMF is pretty high on our list because, again, we are being exposed to it in increasing uh, ways. So that's a great example that you shared of somebody having their router in their bedroom and just the difference that that can make in their sleep by turning it off at night or getting it out of the bedroom. Are there any other um, common examples you have found of people who are having sleep challenges and things that you've been able to tweak for them that have made a really big difference? Yeah. So the other one that comes up, which we haven't discussed yet specifically with you know devices and such, is to get off of them. <laughs> so... I would say anywhere, depending on how sensitive you are, from an hour to two hours before you go to bed. And for a couple of different reasons. One is these devices are very stimulating, just the light alone from them. Now, obviously, there's this discussion now that um, they're emitting a lot of blue light. And so you can hedge for that with programs like that take out the blue contrast. Yeah, I mean, that, that does help. And we, do, we know that, you know that blue spectrum of color can suppress melatonin as well. But I would say that aside, even just the light itself is probably more than we would normally be exposed to in an ancestral environment, okay? After the sunsets, we basically had firelight. That was it, right? And that's not all that bright. I mean, a candle, a fire, whatever. But these screens and devices are far brighter than, than even those. And so that has a way that it can kind of stimulate us and keep us up. Not to say that the fact that if we're engaged with going on social media, checking email cognitively we are being more engaged it's that and that's even separate from the kind of the light stimulation so even from that perspective i think being off those devices in your wind down period is pretty key you know for me i think we have kind of lamps in our bedroom that have orange bulbs in them so it takes out the blue and then basically our wind down is just reading reading by kind of more dim orange lights um and then you know we're not having all the the you know i read novels at night even though i read nonfiction all day long. You know, I I tend to read fiction at night just because that kind of helps to decompress me for the day. But that's really hard to do if you're kind of, you know, in your parting moments before you go to sleep, you're checking texts and social media and all this kind of stuff. That's a a different, totally different etiquette in terms of how your brain's being engaged. And how does acupuncture specifically help with sleep? You've talked about a lot of changes in people's environment that are really important and that have had a huge impact. But acupuncture itself, how has that helped some of your clients? Yeah. So acupuncture, if nothing else, is a profound intervention for the nervous system. 
I mean, we can do a lot of things that are musculoskeletal and tweak the endocrine system and so on. But when we are, we are known as being specialists when it comes to the nervous system. For instance, one of the things that we can treat very effectively, which is very stubborn for, for Western medicine is something like post stroke and getting someone rehabilitated when the nerves have been so, so severely damaged from, you know, from the brain injury, something like that. We can start applying acupuncture the sooner the better and start getting, you know, movement and feeling back into those limbs that become paralyzed. We're really good at treating headaches and migraines. We're really good at treating a lot of nervous disorders and, and, and such. And so um, if nothing else, acupuncture, particularly applied to the scalp and to the ears, can be very calming to the nervous system. It can help kind of disengage that fight, flight, sympathetic nervous system response, and then re-engage the vagal tone and the parasympathetic nervous system. So that it does across the board. That happens in everyone who comes into any acupuncture clinic. But beyond that, you know, we can very specifically address, I think, people's, in a way, I'm going to speak metaphorically, but, you know, it's almost like we're exposed to a lot of electromagnetic fields and we almost like accumulate like a static charge in our body. And there's only so many ways we can discharge that. You know, we can take a, you know, a salt soda bath, for instance, or we could walk barefoot on the ground. But acupuncture is another way where we can almost like discharge that static energy. And that's been my observation is that acupuncture very specifically along certain points can kind of bleed out some of this excess static energy that is accumulating our body from all this positive ions that we're accumulating from being plugged into all these devices day in and day out. And what is functional medicine? So functional medicine is basically a holistic oriented system of medicine that actually comes out of Western allopathic medicine. So holistic medicine is, let's say that's the biggest umbrella term that we can give for someone who is thinking about treating the whole person. You know, traditional medicines like Ayurvedic and traditional Chinese medicine um, are holistic by their very inception, Okay. Now, allopathic Western medicine isn't. It's very much reductionist in its thinking. But there has been this movement since the 90s, started by Jeffrey Bland, of how do we get Western doctors to think more holistically about treating the whole body? And that birthed the the whole field of functional medicine from a Western paradigm. And it sounds like your interest in pursuing this as a career started long before your cancer diagnosis, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. The thing I got the most out of my education, my graduate school education, in traditional Chinese medicine is the ability to think holistically and think and, and see into all the different myriad of factors that are dovetailing into a patient's illness. And so to me, it doesn't matter if the medicine's old or new, if it's you know, based in rigorous science or based more in anecdotal evidence, if the effect is what we're looking for, then I think it's good medicine. And so I have no problem skating the line. I can have one foot in traditional medicine and apply acupuncture and herbal therapy, and I can have another in functional medicine, doing functional medicine testing and looking at the gut microbiome and all this kind of stuff. And to me, if it works, it works. You know, so again, I can do that because I've been trained in holistic thinking in a way that I can apply those different systems of thought and really bring to the table what's best for the patient in front of me. And I know in addition to your book that we've been talking about today, specifically on EMFs, that you have another book more recently than that. Can you share what that book is all about? Yeah. So the title of that is Cancer, Stress, and Mindset. And in this one, I really specifically delve into what is the mindset of a cancer patient and how does that change 
their one, their perception of their diagnosis and their disease, and then the choices they make going forward. And what I'm looking at doing is is trying, let's say you someone's been recently diagnosed with cancer. This is a very short book that they can read. And it's easy to metabolize and they can say, okay, what are the contributions of stress to my diagnosis? And then how do I employ anti-stress strategies and you know, have the kind of mindset that will empower the best kind of lifestyle choices I can make going forward to kind of help with my own healing journey. And you have a blog. Where can listeners find your blog? Yeah. So the blog is empoweredpatientblog.com. I tend to post just once a month there uh, only because I'm working on so many other things in terms of my clinic life and, you know, writing new books and such. But empoweredpatientblog.com is is certainly one place where people can keep tabs on what I'm writing. And do you have any book recommendations for our listeners? Oh, yes. I thought of a few books and I thought of actually one um, organization edition about kind of the EMF stuff. Um, the Environmental Health Trust, by the way, is an excellent organization that's doing fantastic work. They've got in terms of the EMF and, you know, getting things re-regulated and such. So they're a good, good organization to check out when it comes to the whole EMF thing, Environmental Health Trust. One of the books that came to mind is uh, just a cookbook, Nourishing Traditions by Sally Fallon Morell. She was a one of the people that started the Weston A. Price Foundation, which is a great organization that just talks about ancestral diets and, you know, adopting um, the health principles of basically our primitive ancestors. But she makes it very practical in her book called Nourishing Traditions, which is a beautiful book in terms of the, the cooking side of things. Another one, which I think has been very influential to me, I met a woman named Donna Eden many years ago in a seminar I went to, and she wrote it absolutely fantastic book called Energy Medicine. And what I'll say is for anyone who's interested in kind of the more subtle aspect of, of life in terms of, you know, when we talk about energy and Chinese medicine and such, she really grounds it from a Western standpoint, for Western mind, I should say, what energy is like and how we apply it. So it's kind of like this new wave of medicine. She has very practical recommendations for people who um, kind of want to use some of these energy medicine techniques in their life. They don't have to have a degree in acupuncture like I do. They can just apply them. So those are a couple of ones that come in in terms of just kind of medicine healing. And then I was thinking, yeah, one of the ones that's been extremely influential to me over time, it's a big book and it's an old one, but Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda, which is a fun kind of spiritual book. It's when uh, Steve Jobs passed away at his funeral, everyone that attended his funeral got a copy of that book. It's really interesting. It's, um, it's, a, it's a really big, thick book, but it really describes kind of the Eastern thought in terms of philosophy and stuff as it's come over to, to the Western world. And it was really the first book that did that. And that's been a very um, influential book for me in my life. Awesome. Well, those are great. We will include those links to those books and resources in the show notes and listeners can find that at northstarsleepschool.com forward slash podcast. Brandon, my last question for you today is, is there anything that you're looking forward to over the next 12 months? Yeah. So the next one of the next projects I'm working on, I don't know with what order it's going to happen here, but uh, the next thing I would want to write about in depth is the contribution of trauma and emotions to the cancer journey. The stress book that I just finished getting published was definitely more about kind of the day in, the day out chronic stress. But I also want to explore how just really deep-seated traumas can really be at the root of a lot of different health dilemmas, and including cancer being most prominently. So that's something I'm really looking forward to diving into and looking at the research there and making that really approachable for the cancer community or anybody for that matter to, to kind of understand it. Wow, wonderful. Well, I look forward to checking that out. It sounds like you've got a lot on your plate. Thank you so much for taking the time, Brandon, to be here with us today. It's been really fun to chat with you. You're welcome, Kristen. It's a pleasure talking with you this time. 
And for listeners, feel free to subscribe to the podcast, to leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, and to share this episode with a friend. Take care, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the North Star Unplugged Podcast. The audio version can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you like North Star Unplugged, please subscribe and leave a review on one of those channels. Finally, all prior episodes are also on the North Star Sleep School website at northstarsleepschool.com, which offers an e-newsletter you can sign up for.